What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is uh, Jacob with the uh, Daniel 3 podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. Um, I'm excited to have Carrie Baldwin with us. Uh, Carrie is someone that um, I've followed for a while. I actually remember the first time I uh, saw, saw you was um, with your debate. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, that was with Reason, right? Um, yeah, the Soho Forum. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. For those who don't know you, though, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, your background and what it is you do. Sure. So my name is Carrie Baldwin. I have a website called mereliberty.com. Basically, I'm an independent researcher. I've got a degree in philosophy. And um, my website is focused on challenging paradigms in politics, religion, and culture. And so um Basically, I, I talk about a variety of subjects from both a libertarian perspective and a reformed theological perspective, and sometimes those cross paths, and so I'll talk about that as well. Um, I'm also a contributor at the Libertarian Christian Institute, and we just got done, um, or just got published, a book that I helped co-author called Faith Seeking Freedom. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically who I am in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm I'm I unfortunately I have the book and I was gonna show it on the video, but I left it upstairs. <laughs> but right here. I, I got one. Good. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. Uh definitely check that out. I'm I'm not quite done with it, about three quarters of the way, although I did jump around a little bit because I kinda, you know, for, for someone who's I've studied this stuff for a while, so I, I did kind of skimmed through the beginning stuff. Then I went back to like the table of contents and was kind of skipping around a little bit because I was curious to some sure. of the 
exact answers that you guys had, but it's a really good book. I really do uh, recommend it. What was the, pro- how long were you guys working on that? Was that like a, <laughs> a couple years or how, how long did that take to, to put together? Well, as I understand it, um, Norm and Doug, uh, who also uh, are co-authors on the book, um, had been planning to do it for a couple of years. So I'd say that, you know, the planning stages probably took the longest, but as far as writing it, we actually got um, uh, sort of notification from from Doug and Norm that they wanted to write this book um, at the beginning of the year. So just before COVID hit, uh, we were, we were invited to start writing it. Um, so this became, this, this became a lockdown project. We were working on it while, while everybody was on lockdown. So. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess it was convenient to be able to have something to do when we were told not to go out and live life anymore. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. So, um, yeah, I did want to talk a little bit about about the book, um, not to spoil too much of the content in there, but um, sure. since you were a contributor, there were, you know, some topics in there that I was curious what what your take on it was. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I noticed in the book was that it, it tried to really draw a difference between uh, like capital G, like government and then mm-hmm. like the act of governing, like governing as a verb or action that we do. Right. Uh, what, what Can you maybe explain that a little bit? Because I know for a lot of like libertarians um, and anarchists when they're coming in, they get, this is like really confusing terminology mm-hmm. sometimes. You know, we, we talk about how bad government is all the time, but then in the book, it talks about how governing isn't inherently bad. So what's, what's your take on that? And, you know, sort of the, the Christian and logical reasoning behind it. Yeah, so uh, the word government obviously is a noun, um, and we sort of use it synonymously with the state. Um, so it's it's the entity that has monopolized civil governance. So civil governance is the act of administering civil justice, um, or I, I like to call it a service, right? Um, if if we're talking about it in economic terms, you have goods and services. So the administration of civil justice is a service. Um, and that's what governance uh, is. And so in the book, we really want to draw that distinction because what we aren't opposed to is the administration of civil justice. And um, we are opposed to um, the monopolization of it. Or, um, I mean, that's the anarchist view. The, the minarchist view is... Um, you know, of course, a, a very minimal state. Uh, there's a term called the night watchman state, for example, which basically is your your constitutional republic. It's the idea that, you know, you've got, um, you know, these basic uh, branches of government, some courts, some law enforcement, um, but that mostly they're, they're supposed to stay out of your way. Um, but we want to draw the distinction between those two things because we don't want to uh, confuse the issue and try to say that civil governance um, is bad or specifically that the administration of civil justice is bad because uh, scripture tells us that God has ordained civil, uh, civil governance or the administration of civil justice. And so it would be wrong of us to deride that. Um, but we do call into question uh, how we go about doing that, which 
is what the book is all about. Right. So, and, and that's, the, it's a good way to put it. You know, and there's a lot of, and I, I talked about this with, um, uh, with our friend, uh, Greg a little while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's, there seems to be like a divide among libertarians and, and anarchists broadly. Um, but also within the Christian libertarian world of uh, those who think that there's like this no King, but Christ and, and Christian libertarianism is sort of a rejection of all authority and that we just should, you know, live our lives subjectively under God. And then um, I think LCI and, you know, us that are kind of more from, at least, you know, a lot of us from the reformed school are more of the idea that, well, there's still a biblical role for authority and for governance. And, you know, we don't want to try to ignore those passages that are clearly in the Bible, whereas maybe uh, other Christian libertarians find different ways of dealing with those passages or might avoid them altogether. Um, What would civil governance be then, uh, just for those who aren't familiar with the term, you said it's like a service. So this is like, um, just, you know, to to lay that out, is it, is it, is it just going after bad guys and, and contract disputing? Is there anything more to it that, that the Bible says that civil governance is for? Well, um, yeah, I want to I want to draw out another distinction um, that we often talk about, which is legitimate versus illegitimate authority. And I would say, you know, you definitely have the libertarians who are uh, somewhat jaded and have a disrespect for any kind of claimed authority. I would say um, that for both um, LCI and also the the reformed view. We hold authority, like legitimate authority, uh, in very high regard. So we have a great respect for legitimate authority because it's ordained by God. And our respect for it is so great that we understand that it must necessarily be limited to its God-ordained scope. Because as soon as it goes outside of those bounds... It, it all gets delegitimized. And we see that by the fact that you have people who are jaded by even, even legitimate authority. So I would say we have a greater respect for authority than most people would like to give us credit for. And we're trying to protect that. Um, now, as far as what biblical civil governance is, you know, scripture talks a lot about um, a lot of the same uh things that libertarians consider crimes like theft and and murder. And so the libertarian idea or the libertarian principle of of non-aggression is actually a great way to express what we find in scripture, which is that you cannot initiate violence against another person. So that, you know, the initiation of violence against a person's life is murder the initiation of violence against a person's property uh, is theft. And we have two commandments, uh, you know, from God that says don't murder and, and don't steal. So, um, and we also have other, other Bible verses, which talk about, um, you know, what, that we can, that, that we can own property and we can do with that property, what we wish. Um, and, there's uh, also scripture that that shows that 
we can't own other people, right? That, that slavery is wrong. Um, so those are just a few examples. And of course, we, we have uh, biblical citations in the book. Um, but that's essentially it. The job, the role of, of civil government is to, as I said earlier, administer civil justice. So that means um, that means adjudicating disputes between parties. That means uh, seeking restitution um, when rights violations occur and, and that sort of thing. So if there's, if there's a theft, then you know, there needs to be restitution for that theft. If there's murder, there needs to be restitution for the, for that murder. Um, so that's, that's essentially it. It's very limited. I would say that's the point. Sure. One, one question that I, I don't recall seeing in the book, but if it's there, you can maybe point out where it was. Um, but I know like one question people often will have, I mean, you talked about there's two flavors, libertarianism, there's minarchism and anarchism. Uh, the liber the minarchists would would have this idea of the minimal state that doesn't go above what its god ordained jurisdiction is. Mm -hmm. But if we had, uh, you know, would, would the Bible be able to support a anarchist view of civil governance, where the market would be uh, free to develop, you know, market forces of governance that would enforce either. Uh, that wouldn't enforce the proper role of civil governance, whether, whether it be going too far or not going far enough. And this kind of leads into like, you know, a question that people often have, I think, when Christians first start to think about uh, libertari libertarianism it is abortion, mm -hmm. you know, because that's a, that's a subject that is, you know, very, a very hot button issue, very important to a lot of, a lot of Christians of different uh, of different backgrounds and yeah uh, you know it's like that that sometimes is like you know the reason why a lot of christians continue to vote for the republican party despite the fact that the republican party doesn't fulfill any of its promises doesn't follow through on actually rolling back government in any significant way uh but but they're but they're pro-life and they and they talk mm -hmm. a good game there and that that draws people in and they they can't imagine trying to leave something like abortion up to uh, market forces. So what would be uh, your, your answer to that, both on the abortion front and in general, uh, on if, if, you know, a, you know, people, Christians who are trying to be led by the Bible and, and by God uh, can, can truly embrace a kind of market anarchy view of civil governance? Sure. Well, the, the primary difference between minarchism and uh, anarchism is the, the market environment. It's the difference between, um, uh, between a monopoly and non-monopoly. And so, you know, just like we wouldn't want healthcare to be monopolized or education to be monopolized, um, or any of those other important things that, that we need, uh, to be monopolized, Anarchists, Christian anarchists also say that we don't want the state to be monopolized. So if we look at, say, Romans 13, where God says, uh, you know, through Paul, that we are to submit to the governing authorities, there's nothing in there that says that we have to have a monopoly state. So um, under what's, what, uh, what anarchists call a polycentric legal order, uh, you simply have a, a non-monopoly civil gover governance. Um, and so you have multiple 
agencies providing the service of, of uh, you know, adjudicating disputes and administering civil justice. You have competition for law enforcement. You have competition for uh, magistrates and that sort of thing. And so just like with market forces um, in say healthcare or education, when you have competition, when you introduce competition into, in, into the situation, you actually um, uh, incentivize those, those businesses to provide a good, uh, a, a quality good or service at an affordable price. There's no reason to believe that we can't do that with civil governance as well. In fact, what we find with the monopoly state is, um, and this is, you know, the difference between anarchists and minarchists is that you may be able to limit the state temporarily, right? Like in America, we were we were able to have a fairly limited state for, you know, roughly a hundred years, and for the past hundred years, it's been it's been growing out of control. So, um, and when you get there, when when it starts to grow out of control, you get a lower quality service, and it's more expensive. So, um, you know, scripture doesn't prescribe for us a political philosophy, uh, which is uh, sort of the, the way that we conceptualize how to actually go about administering civil justice. Um, that's something for us to work out. And um, at least from an anarchist perspective, we would say, okay, we've tried this monopoly state thing like a million times. Uh, throughout the course of, of human history, and it hasn't worked. Um, there are examples of anarchic type societies, which um, I believe the longest standing anarchic society was um, Celtic Ireland. Um, but, uh, you know, the as far as abortion is concerned, and we can get into that a little bit more, um, this this really boils down to where the solutions for abortion are going to come from. And, you know, I would say that the state has demonstrated that it is incapable of, of providing effective solutions that don't violate rights when it comes to um, many things like the drug war or this COVID nonsense, or, and I, I extend that all the way to abortion. And so I see that the market, that market forces actually give us as pro-lifers an advantage in um, not only protecting the unborn, but also supporting women who are in those, those crisis pregnancy situations. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it, it's funny how, I mean, it, it, it's such a tired metaphor because I hear it all the time, but I, I, I just love it. I always go back to the metaphor of the state being like the ring of power in Lord of the Rings. And mm -hmm. it's like, we, it's very tempting to want to use that ring for good, but you, you ultimately can't. It ultimately is always going to uh, twist whatever good intentions you have. You, you can't see what consequences are going to come of the, the power that you are advocating for down the road. Um, and, and not only that, but let's say, you know, Donald Trump actually were, you know, he won't, let's say he won. Uh, and in his first year of his second term, he somehow passed legislation to ban abortion. Mm -hmm. That's not a victory that stands for all time. All it takes mm -hmm. is four years and another president, and that gets overturned. 
So even if you could somehow use that power to accomplish something good, it's just, it, it, it's a, at best, a temporary victory. Because right. all, you know, and, and really the culture wars escalating is a, is a reflection of this. The more the state power has grown, each side tries to use it against the other one. Mm-hmm. But the only people really benefiting from it are the people at top who keep getting richer and right. who, keep, who keep on, you know, getting away with more and more nefarious things behind the scenes. And right. uh, so, yeah, there, there's like, A, there's the the fact that we can analyze the, the state mechanisms and how much they failed, as you were alluding to, to actually bring us about anything good. And then two, there's the cost that, that comes, that's associated with that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't really appear to me that um, the state is capable of banning, like you said, banning abortion in a way that wouldn't come at the expense of, of a, a greater uh, attack on people's rights and, and essential liberties. Yeah, well, and one of my favorite thinkers, uh, Robert Higgs, who did some excellent work on, uh, he wrote a book, well, he's written several things, but he wrote a book called Crisis and Leviathan. And he actually went through and studied how the state will uh, use crises in order to um, get power grabs and, and, and grow itself. Um, and we don't have any modern examples of that. I know. (laughs) Um, well, and he also, he's the one that introduced me to the concept of democide as well, which is, Mm. Um, where democide is where uh, governments have killed people in non-war situations. Um, so that's that's a topic that isn't talked about a lot. But one of his sayings that I absolutely love, I think it's I think it sums things up nicely. Is is this? He says, um, "Without the state, we're going to have a bad situation." But with the state, we're going to have a much worse situation. Mm. And, you know, that really sort of, um, I think it's it's sobering insofar as coming to realize, look, um, we live in a sinful fallen world, right? Uh, we, ha- we have conflict. We have disagreements. Um, we, we have these things that put human beings at odds with one another. And we have a choice as to how we can go about dealing with that as a problem. Um, And so, you know, libertarians and anarchists um, don't propose any sort of utopian vision. We actually say, no, life is full of problems. And the best way to solve those problems are through market means because using the state is, is much worse. And that's, that's manifest. That's self-evidently true. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what it's, there are many fallacies that come out of statism, but the Nirvana fallacy is the mm-hmm. biggest one because, yeah. you know, people will always go, you know, well, what about this and this and this? Why, you know, if we don't have the state, how how are we going to solve all these problems? And the, the two problems with that are A, to assume that there's only one way you can solve problems and that's with a monopoly of force. And, right. and, and B, that the solutions that we have to come up with have to be perfect and have to solve every problem in the world it's like if you're if your goal in this life is to create a society that doesn't have some kind of drawback to it you're just you're not going to find it yeah Um, but what you can do is say i would rather deal with problems that occur naturally than to create some sort of institution that's going to not only fail to correct 
those problems, but it's going to uh, incur a whole different set of problems as a consequence of of its creation. And yeah, you go ahead. Well, this is this is what the market is for, because, um, you know, this is what economics is for. It's for solving problems. You know, a lot of people who don't understand free market economics sort of look at the market as being, oh, it's the stock market. It's all these, you know, suits in in New York or Washington who are making bank off the working man. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. Uh, the economy is you and me exchanging ideas, right? Where we're making exchanges for, for mutually beneficial ends. We're improving our lives together, right? We're solving each other's problems by innovating and coming up with these ideas and producing and, and all of that. So the idea with the market is um, to, to provide solutions and not just one solution, which is what the government provides. They try and provide a one-size-fits-all solution. The market provides multiple solutions so that individuals can choose which solution works best for them. And that's how we solve these problems. And are they solved permanently? No, right? We're, we're always going to have those problems. But we can, um, we can solve problems in such a way that, um, that everybody benefits out of it in some fashion. I mean, even just last year before, before COVID hit, there were reports coming out that, um, that abject poverty across the world uh, had had been raised. We had we had lifted the most poorest nations out of poverty just through, uh, you know, through the market means that we have now, um, which aren't well, which aren't free market. Of course, they're mixed market, mixed between capitalism and socialism. But even you know, with how much capitalism we have had, that's allowed us to raise the entire world out of abject poverty. So that's a benefit to all. No, it was the governments that, that lifted us out of poverty with, you know, their their the 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 money printer goober, remember? That's what... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh God. Um, well, and the reports now after COVID is that the the world, especially third world countries who um, who really depended on Western economies have now plummeted. They're going back into abject poverty because of these lockdowns. Yeah, but you know we can't talk about that because uh, everyone <laughs> needs to stay home and save lives and wear masks and save lives. But <sighs> but no, no one. I mean, you, you you said like you said the market is for solving problems, and the market mm -hmm. is people. It's just a you know we we often speak in these like euphemisms and like we we say like the state. And the market, and they're, they're useful labels. But what we sometimes forget is that these are labels for people acting. Mm -hmm. You know, like in in uh, this goes back to you know the idea of human action that that uh, uh, the Austrian school and, and Mises talked about. You know, and uh, everything is reducible to to human action, and humans mm -hmm. are they're better off acting when they're acting in their own self interest, not like doesn't mean selfishly like they're you know well screw everyone around me but no they're 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 making their own uh judgments based upon their own you know values of their situation and going out into the marketplace which is interacting with other people and you know and and that is how the market works is people uh having you know goals and 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 
things that they want to achieve and then finding the best means that the market has available to them. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, and then vice versa, people who go out and see things that people need and figure out ways to provide that. And that, that synergistic force of people needing things and people providing those needs is what the market is. It's just people acting. And it's, it's not like it's magic. It's, it's, you know, so when people, when, when libertarians, when we talk about how the free market can provide these things, a lot of people can't understand what we're saying is, you know, people can provide these things, but what the state does as a monopoly is it prevents human innovation from working in it's the way that it it can, when Mm -hmm. you let it operate in the market When it operates in the state, what do you get? I mean, it's, I like that analogy. Having the state run something is like, compare it to imagine if the DMV ran everything and everyone <laughs> hates going to the DMV and waiting in line and knows how inefficient it is. And it's like, do you really want the DMV to run healthcare? Do you want the DMV to, to, to run education and run all these things? You know, but as much as people can complain about, you know, it's funny, I feel like a lot of people complain about the state in their daily lives. Yeah. But then when you actually challenge them to imagine, well, what if we didn't use it? They go, well, uh, like, that's not, that's, that's not a category. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, and the, and the latest example is this whole, uh, this whole thing with the COVID vaccine, um, because, you know, it's supposed to be operation warp speed, right. <laughs> and we're supposed to get the vaccine out with warp speed. And the big complaint right now is it's not getting out fast enough. <laughs> so like, you know, there's these people, the, the idea that, um, a select group of people who work for the government can actually solve all the problems while we sit back and wait for them to solve these problems is, is absurd that that doesn't um, it's not demonstrable. Like what, what we actually find in reality is government makes these premises and, and not only are they uh, unable to follow through with their promises, they end up causing harm in the process and there's there's simply no there there's simply no example of them actually um, following through with their promises in an effective, affordable um, way that is the most advantageous that it could be. Like that doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. And what, what's funny is, like, I'm willing to give the devil his due sometimes. And when a lot of Republican conservative Christians talk about Trump. And you're like, he's the best president we've ever had. And I'll go, you know what, on balance, he might be the best president that's, you know, that I've witnessed in my lifetime. Uh, It's not saying much. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, he did cut taxes, but he did not cut spending. Spending increased. Mm -hmm. And yes, he didn't start any major new wars, but he kept the old ones going and increased drone strikes that compared to uh, his predecessor, Obama, mm-hmm. and he didn't deliver on health care. We still have Obamacare, and we built some more border wall, but it's not done, you know? So, I mean, the economy was supposedly booming, but, I mean, it's easy to boom a bubble economy that's funded by, you know, uh, Fed-printed money. <laughs> like, yeah. all, all Trump did was play the same cards that his predecessors did. So it's like, okay, maybe he wasn't as disastrous as some presidents before him. I don't really see that as something to celebrate. I mean, to me, that's just like looking at, 
you know, if I was a slave and went, oh, well, this slave master beat me less than my last two slave masters. It's like, well, right. that's you're good, but it's you're not. You're still a slave. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I'd say Trump in in some ways probably slowed the inevitable demise of the <laughs> United States government. But um, yeah, I, um, well, I, I, I don't really play that game with, with my friends. It's like, mm, you know, I, if you want to nitpick, I could certainly pull out good things that Barack Obama did and I'm no fan of his. So, um, you know, a broken, always, a broken always, clock is, is right, right twice a day. Well, and they, they have to, you know, they have to do a little bit, you know, they have to keep up the illusion by doing the bare minimum to say, oh, we did something. You know, they, they throw us some scraps and say, look, we're, we're taking care of you. We care about you, but it's, it's yeah. all just a, it's all just a house of cards. Yep. So we, we, we touched a bit on it, but um, how would the market deal with abortion? Do you think? And I know this is something you talked a little bit about in your debate with, with Walter. Um, mm -hmm. Walter pushed the idea of uh, what they called it, evictionism, I believe was what he, he called it, which, um, I had to admit I'd never heard of before that debate, and I had to say that was at least like, well, that's a lot better than the the stuff that Democrats put out, which is like, you know, abortion on demand up to forty weeks. You know, evictionism is certainly an improvement on that. Um, but what are ways that you know the market would solve for abortion? Would you think that there would be any like market restrictions on it, or would we just be, you know, w would the focus be more on like people who are pro life trying to encourage mothers to not make that choice? Well, yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, and I love getting this question. Every time I answer it, I try and improve it a little bit because I've got this idea in my head and I want to be able to convey it to, to people. You know, when, when we talk about the abortion problem, um, typically what we think about is uh, mom's got a crisis pregnancy that she doesn't want. What do we do with that? And the way I look at this problem is we have to go much further back to how did she get into this crisis pregnancy to begin with. And uh, one thing that conservative pro-lifers do not like to do is they do not like to uh, look at the data, the statistics about why women seek abortions to begin with. And I'm of the opinion that if we actually take that data seriously, that gives us a glimpse into how the market might actually solve those problems. So the two number one reasons are, or the two top reasons why women seek abortion to begin with are poverty and bad relationships. Now we've already discussed how uh, a free market actually lifts the entire world out of poverty, right? Now I'm a single mom and I work from home and I also homeschool. But I would not be able to make that happen without um, goods and services from, from the market, from the economy. For example, um, I, all three of my kids, and I'm not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, I'm te technically poor, um, but all three of my kids own computers. They own very basic computers, which get them online so that we can, so that we can homeschool online. And most of our education uh, or educational resources we find for free. So, um, 
you know, that's a need that the market provides for me that allows me to take care of my kids. So what we actually find with these statistics is that during, um, during Democrat administrations, what usually happens is the abortion rate starts to decline. And then under Republican administrations, that decline slows down. Now, over time, since about the mid 80s, um, and up until today, the, the uh, rate of abortions that are occurring today are actually lower than, uh, than Roe v. Wade, than pre-Roe v. Wade numbers. So we are below the number of abortions that were occurring at the time Roe v. Wade was decided. So that number has been decreasing, but um, it mostly decreases under Democratic administrations. Now, Democrats use this data point to say, see, this is why we need entitlements. This is why we need welfare, food stamps, um, you know, all these things for, for women, because uh, this is going to, um, and I say Democrats, I mean like pro-life Democrats or, or pro-life liberal Christians um, will say, this is what we should do. We should increase entitlement spending. And I say, no, if we actually look at what's going on, you have a woman who is having her ba most basic needs met in the form of food stamps, food stamps or welfare, or maybe she gets, um, she gets childcare so that she can go have a job, right? These are all economic things. Um, and so um, if, if welfare, right, which isn't the best option, if welfare can actually slow the rate of decline for women with crisis pregnancies, uh, um, then certainly a free market can, can have a much better effect. So how, how might that look? Well, um, I mentioned before that we find educational resources basically for free. When you have a free market, you have so many options available that uh, things that might have been considered luxuries before are, are staples and, and easily accessible or relatively easy, easily accessible to people who are in lower income brackets. So, you know, if, if the free market lifts the world out of poverty, if the free market provides for the most basic needs of people in these situations, for, for moms in these situations, then there's no reason to believe that a free market wouldn't mitigate the felt need for, for abortion. When it comes to bad relationships, uh, what's necessary in order to prevent those is education. Again, something like I can, I can very easily go get um, an education about relationships on the internet for virtually nothing. Um, so all of this can be provided for by the market and can improve people's lives. And women, it, it, it is shown with, with the data that women who have those most basic needs met, who feel like they can actually support that child, they're more likely to keep the baby. That's just been demonstrated over and over and over. Um, so in my mind, there's no need to um, try and control women's choices and things like that. The idea here is, is that when a woman is faced with a crisis pregnancy, 
right? And she is standing in her bathroom with that little abortion pill in her hand and staring herself down in the mirror. She's the only one who has the power to throw that pill down the toilet and not take it. And so what we have to do is provide the environment um, necessary to help her feel like she's got that support. And I think the free market can do that way better than entitlement spending, way, way better than regulation of the abortion industry. I mean, <laughs> conservatives like to, to talk a huge game about being advocates of capitalism, but when it comes to abortion, they're very, very socialist. And they're interested, they are interested in regulating the abortion industry as they've demonstrated. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, welfare is kind of a key thing here and on, on both those issues, because as far as the ability of needs being met, correlating to less abortions, uh, you know, attempted, attempted or done, well, we know that money given to government for welfare is like at least 50% just goes to paying government bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And and I think really less than 50% of the money that goes to government that you could say is allocated for welfare actually gets directly sent out to people. Mm -hmm. So the free market is shown, you know, private charities, more money goes to even like the worst charity that like, you know, doesn't give as much of its money because you can go online and find rankings of charities and how much money uh that they take in goes towards paying people even the worst charities though give out more than uh government does as far as a percentage of what they 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 take in um so yeah if welfare is at all helpful it is you know just a a blunt weak pathetic attempt compared to what the free market could do and then and then two um you know you usually with private charity and stuff there's more like you have to go seek it out. And um, it's not just a free handout all the time. A lot of times it's like you have to be um, like, it might be coming through through church or uh, you getting involved in some kind of program that helps, you know, uh, that helps you out. Whereas government is just kind of like, you know, hey, here's the check and, and there you go. Um, so it doesn't help with, you know, teaching uh, women or incentivizing them to make better choices in their in their relationships uh, it actually mm -hmm. probably has the opposite effect and uh you know not to say that um you know i'm not trying to sound judgmental towards women like you know or anything like that but it's just you know socialism like you said it's just a it, it, it doesn't produce as good of an outcome as as the free market is capable of doing uh, right so well and and even in you know uh you know, those bad relationships that, that I talked about is, uh, one of the reasons why women seek abortion, those are abusive relationships. And one of the things that I have learned since, um, since doing my research and especially since I've had my, you know, did my debate with Walter, um, I'm, I've, I've come to a realization that our culture doesn't actually understand abuse very well. And we don't understand how abuse works. Um, in terms of rights and responsibilities and, you know, how to avoid an abusive relationship, but also how to get out of an abusive relationship. There are all those, those things. Um, and, you know, my, my argument with the abortion debate 
is that if we absolutize fetal rights, right? If we say that the fetus from the moment conception is complete is a self-owner with basic human rights. Um, if we do that, if we absolutize fetal rights, we actually absolutize women's rights and we know exactly what is, what, you know, uh, what she is in relation to her fetus, not just a mother, but she's, she's got, um, she's got a proprietary claim there. And we more often than not, especially the pro-life view tends to treat women as though they're just incubators. Like let's just get that baby out and kind of leave her hanging after the fact, you know, like that's, that's the goal. And I know pro-lifers hate hearing that, but, and, and there are individual pro-lifers who work against that, but, but by and large, the, the political arm of the pro-life movement is exactly that they're interested in getting those babies born. And then they sort of say, okay, you're, there's, there's no point in helping you after that. You have to bootstrap everything. Now, it's such a a waste, like the amount of money and energy that goes into the political part of the pro-life movement. I just think of the hours and the money that you're putting into that. What if you put that into building more women's shelters and more, more church uh, organizations that go out there and, mm-hmm. and try to provide, you know, aid, you know, mutual aid and, and, and stuff to, to, to mothers right. in difficult situations. To yeah. me, that would have a much, you, you could have abortion 100% legal in the statist sense, but you could see abortion decline rapidly if, yeah. if, if, if Christians focused on, you know, actually going out there and trying to, you know, combat it head on in the market versus trying to, you know, continue in this futile attempt to just get, get, you know, a piece of paper that says it's banned, but you know, okay, right. well then what, you know? Yeah. Just, then it, you have the black market. Right. Look, and, and I write about this in the book, right? Um, I talk about what, you know, what, what would society look like if abortion were, were legal, but we had a libertarian society, we had a completely unregulated market. Look, as it exists now, CPCs, crisis pregnancy centers, outnumber Planned Parenthood centers as it exists now. Um, And Planned Parenthood is having a hard time staying in business. In New Mexico, um, they passed uh, with this COVID relief bill that, that they passed here in the state, they included a bailout of Planned Parenthood. Okay, so under the economy as it exists now, the abortion industry is failing. In a free market, where we are allowed to compete, where Planned Parenthood is subject to market forces, subject to compete, um, we have an opportunity to actually provide a, a better, better options to mothers with crisis pregnancies um, for less money that is more safe, right? Suddenly, the abortion option becomes the dangerous, expensive, and um, uh, immoral option. And so people would inevitably not choose it. They would go out of business. We could put them out of, out of business. And as it stands right now, CPCs provide more services than planned parenthood. Um, like for example, there are some CPCs that actually, um, offer pro bono legal services to women who are in abusive relationships so that they can get out right? Um, whereas uh, Planned Parenthood, 
they're actually facilitating human trafficking and and the sex the sex trade by covering up uh, teens who go in for abortions with their pimps or you know with their handlers um, because they got pregnant in in the sex trade. So it it if we're if we understand economics and we understand the power of the market and we understand the power of consumer regulation, there's no reason to believe that if we had a completely unregulated market, even without a law prohibiting abortion, we could put the abortion industry out of business. Yeah, I think that's a that's the best argument I've heard. Even more, I mean, you made a lot of these same arguments with Walter, but I can tell you've refined them a bit more since then yeah. um, on how the, the market is the best means for uh, combating abortion. And, mm-hmm. and and even in the worst case scenario of, of, a, of a free market that, you know, were a, a, even if you lived in a society where people did not view abortion as murder, that just the incentives of abortion uh, as far as like the, the the financial aspects of it already in our society today, where abortion is not just legal but subsidized, it's mm-hmm. already failing. So you right. remove the yeah. you remove the uh, the government subsidies and bailouts, which that's that's off to find the uh, maybe you can share that with me. The you said Colorado uh, with, with Colorado New, bill, New Mexico or New Mexico where they yeah. you said they bailed out Planned Parenthood. That's yep, yeah, crazy. Uh, yeah, it is crazy and. Um, Oh man, I just lost my thought. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Well, if it comes back to me, I'll bring it back up. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I love Walter. I know you you love him too. That was a, yeah. he's a he's a a really you know great thinker, a really nice guy. Um, what was what was that experience like? As far as like, how did you even um, you know? Were you just like the only libertarian who was like, I have a good pro-life argument because I know like libertarians <laughs> don't, libertarians hate talking about abortion. Like I'm, yeah. I'm like out of all the libertarian groups I'm a part of on Facebook, I think like half of them have like a rule, like we will not talk about abortion because yeah. that just like goes downhill so quick. And, yeah. you know, I was, I was glad to see you and Walter had like actually a really good like conversation about it. And, yeah. um, you know, like, you know, he, it wasn't, it wasn't nasty or anything like you sometimes see on see on Facebook. And um, so what, what was that experience like as far as the debate? And like, was there anything that like Walter said that like made you had to go back and rethink things or, you know, any arguments he presented that you weren't like prepared for or anything or, you know, how, how was that? Yeah, I, I felt a little bad because I, I mean, first of all, that was, that was my very first debate um, definitely my very first public debate. I also, um, I, I had a fear of public speaking. I think I'm pretty well over it now, (laughs) but, um, I had a fear of public speaking. Um, and so, uh, I spent, I spent at least six months. I had, I want to say about 10 months notice, um, for the debate. So, um, Jean Epstein, who hosts the Soho forum had called me, uh, early in the year 2019 to invite me to debate. And basically the way he found me was through, um, uh, Pete's podcast. I, I feel really bad cause I'm terrible at pronouncing his last name, but he has the free man beyond the wall yes. podcast. I can't pronounce um, his last name either. Otherwise and, I would try. And I, and I should, <laughs> Wajones, because I think. I'm Pete Wajones, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> 
I feel terrible because I'm in I'm in New Mexico and I'm around Spanish all the time. I should be able to say that. But anyways, I'm in PA. I have an excuse. <laughs> um, <laughs> at any rate, and and Pete's wonderful. So Pete had actually heard my um, my my fetal self ownership arguments uh, from my podcast, um, and so he invited me on uh, Free Man Beyond the Wall, and we talked about it. And Gene Epstein had heard me on uh, on Pete's podcast. And, um, when he called me up, he said, you know, well, we've been wanting to do this abortion debate, but we wanted, you know, number one, we didn't want the old tired debate because everybody's tired of that. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why, excuse me, why libertarians don't like talking about it is this because it's the, the old debate is old and then we've hashed through it and, and it doesn't work. Um, and so, uh, at any rate, uh, Gene liked my argument. Um, I don't know that he agreed. Well, I know that I, he said that he did, he was, um, he definitely agreed with Walter, but he appreciated that I was bringing a, a fresh perspective to it. Um, and he wanted a woman taking the pro-life position, especially since, you know, Walter being a man is taking the, the pro-choice position. So that was sort of how I, I fell, fell into it. Um, as far as the experience, the experience was wonderful. Um, the Soho Forum people are absolutely wonderful people. Um, it was a very um, welcoming experience. And, you know, during the debate, it was, it was probably the most calm and amicable debate you could possibly imagine, especially for the abortion debate. Um, and, you know, I think people were really engaged and they were listening and they asked great questions. Um, and uh, so at any rate, as far as, you know, being prepared for Walter's, uh, for Walter's arguments, um, I was very well prepared and I felt bad because I wasn't able to actually put anything formal out there so that he could uh, really prepare for my argument. Um so, uh, at any rate, but, you know, uh, I don't think that anything that I presented was, um, anything that, that caught him off guard. I wasn't really caught off guard with anything he said. I just sort of, you know, in hindsight was like, oh, I should have said this. Um, so at any rate, you know, the debate went really well and the reception that I've had from it has been wonderful. Um, lots of positive feedback, even from pro-choicers who have said um, that that they appreciate me taking women's rights into consideration. Like they may even disagree with me, but we can have a conversation, right? Which is something that is very difficult to do between a pro-lifer and a pro-choicer. Um, but we can have these conversations. Most of the people that um, that I've received positive feedback from are those people who have sort of been in the middle in the gray area. So, you know, you're very militant pro-lifers. They don't, they don't like me very much because <laughs> I'm not morally outraged and demanding for an overturn of Roe v. Wade. Um, and, uh, the militant pro-choicers don't like me because, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, a conservative Christian incognito. Uh, um, so, but, you know, there's this, there's this huge gray area in between and, you know, those people who will say, well, I'm pro-life, but, or I'm pro-choice, but, 
And those are the people that have really given me a lot of positive feedback about it. And that's really the majority of people. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, at least that's my opinion. I could be wrong, but in my experience, the, the, the there's loud people, but they're a minority on both sides. But most mm-hmm. people, even if they disagree, you know, with us on this particular issue, they recognize that it's you know they're they're in that gray area where they're like they can see the other side even if they don't you know come down quite the same as we do and and yep. and, and, and yeah I mean yeah that that debate was really good you know I mean if that was your first debate you did very well I mean you 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 handled it well and you know I was when I first went I had watched Walter before on uh, Sam Cedar's show which is a uh, the Majority Report. Okay. And that debate, those debates did not go well because Walter got mm. very irate with Sam. Oh, no. now, Sam, Sam's a bit of a troll, but uh, mm. but but still, mm-hmm. Walter. That was my only time I'd watched Walter in a debate, so I went in like, oh god, like what's going to happen? But it went really well, <laughs> and um, and and yeah, it was. It's a it's a good debate that I can like show people when I'm dealing with other anarchists and libertarians who will like you know, are you pro life? And I'm like, yes you know, but I'm not trying to use the state. And then like, I can link that debate and be like, here's a good, you know, rundown on kind of, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the way I come. And that was, you helped put to words kind of what my intuitions were. Um, mm-hmm. But I had avoided the pro, the abortion topic for a while, because I didn't really know how to articulate it because yeah. I, mean, I, I knew that the market could probably handle these things, but I didn't know you know, I didn't really know how to put it. And it's just tough because, you know, I grew up a Republican and uh, I I grew up a Republican and then I was kind of a a Democrat for a little bit. But even Mm -hmm. when I was a Democrat, I was still pro-life and very strongly so. So I didn't get along with, even though I voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016, which was the last time I voted, Uh um, uh, people still didn't like me on the left because I was pro-life and a Christian. Yeah. So that's, you know, those two strikes together you're just you're you're taboo but mm-hmm. um yeah so um i guess the last thing i wanted to talk about then was your other we talked about uh, lci and the book we talked about the debate with walter um you your project or your page uh is called mere liberty let's talk about that first of all what is uh is there anything behind the name like where'd you come up with the name and like what's it you know tied into like what the your 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 page and your your work is about yeah so mere liberty is a spinoff of um c.s lewis's mere christianity which okay. is um you know mere christianity is sort of uh christianity it's at its most basic core so mere liberty when i started it was based off of that it was the idea of you know talking about liberty at its most basic core and um I started that blog back in 2012 uh, with sort of the idea in mind of, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, I challenged paradigms. So uh, the paradigm that I initially had in mind was the uh, the political spectrum, the the paradigm of the political spectrum, left versus right. And um, so it was just challenging this idea that there's only two sides to any given issue. Um, and... So I really wanted to um, use the the blog to challenge ideas in such a way that, you know, hey, maybe there's a third or fourth or fifth way of looking at these things. Um, maybe there are good things to talk about from either the left or the right that, that we need to consider. Um, so, 
that's how it, that's how it started. Um, eventually it grew and, and matured and, um, you know, I really started incorporating reformed theology into it and reformational philosophy as, as far as I could, I'm still learning, um, still learning that. Um, and then of course, uh, libertarian philosophy. And so I talk about, um, I talk about these ideas of, uh, these political ideas, cultural ideas, economic ideas. Um, I try to do it from a reformational perspective. I try to do it from a libertarian perspective. And especially since, um, my debate with Walter, I really want to incorporate, uh, or incorporate a view of these things from the perspective of women and how, uh, how the state has impacted women, how the economy impacts women. Um, I hate to call it women's studies, but there is a little bit of <laughs> element to that. Um, uh, it's not uh, feminist. I'm not feminist. Um, in fact, I have a couple of articles up there explaining why I'm not a feminist because um, it's a lot of people will confuse me uh, with, with feminism, but um at any rate, so I talk about um, a lot of things that may not seem connected at first, like my two major topics that I talk about are libertarianism and, you know, this, this idea of fetal self-ownership and abortion. And then I also talk about um, human identity, particularly for, for women from a Christian perspective. Uh, um, so in fact, uh, in 2021, I tend to um, start sort of bringing those, those paths together and showing how they, uh, how they do touch, how they do intersect. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm surprised I didn't catch that mere Liberty, mere Christianity. I, I love that book. Um, but it just didn't hit me until you described it, that that was what you were going for. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the reformed <clears throat> part and uh, have you always been like reformed or that's something, you know, that you came to later in life or what was, you know, your background as a, <laughs> you know, Christian, as far as that goes. Sure. Yeah. Now, um, I grew up in the, uh, Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, which is a conservative branch of the Lutheran church. Um, and, uh, over the course of my life eventually became reformed. Uh, Lutherans are very insistent that you do not include them in under the reformed umbrella. <laughs> um, they don't even like to be called Protestant sometimes. Yeah, no, they, they really <laughs> don't like the word Protestant. Um, at any rate, yeah. So they don't like being called Reformed or Protestant. So eventually, um, you know, over the, over the course of time, I found Reformed theology. And um, I think I appreciated it because uh, they, uh, I think Reformed theology sort of gets into more details about things that um, I had questions about in the Lutheran church and, uh, I love the LCMS. Um, in fact, right now I'm attending an LCMS church. Um, although I'm not, not a communicant member there, I'm their resident Calvinist. Uh, um, <laughs> it's funny. But, yeah. Um, at any rate, um, you know, I've, I just came over the course of time came to, uh, several conclusions one of which is I'm definitely Calvinist. I definitely hold to the Westminster Confession. Um, I do think that uh, Lutheran theology paved a way for me that, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have. 
Um, we have lots of things in common. Um, you know, Calvinists and Lutherans, I think, have a lot more in common than both sides tend to give each other credit for. Although there, yeah. yeah, although there are significant differences, which is why I tell my pastor all the time, "I'm sorry, I'm really not Lutheran." <laughs> but, um, at any rate, yeah, that's that's essentially my my background. Yeah, I came to Calvinism later in life, very recently, actually. I probably, I think it's only been a year and a half now. Um, mm. I think last, yeah, I think August or September of 2019, actually, is when I uh, uh, became a Calvinist after, actually, I was very anti-Calvinist and started debating with Calvinists on Facebook and then realized <laughs> I had a bad understanding of it, which is, mm -hmm. you know, which is funny. You know, a lot of the Christian libertarian at least to the Christian anarchist community um, and probably maybe even Christianity overall in the West, a lot of them, if you're, if they're not reformed, they have a very, very negative view of, of Calvinism and, and mm -hmm. reformed theology, which um, is, is interesting and unfortunate. And, and, and especially like the, the main criticism, which I'm curious for your thoughts on, is like a lot of Christian libertarians don't understand like how Calvinists can be libertarians or anarchists. They're like, to them, it seems like those, those things are in conflict, um, which obviously we don't find them to be in conflict at all. Um, right. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, um, as far as maybe why that negative perception exists, is it just because like there are some loud cage stagey hyper Calvinists on the internet that, you know, are annoying to some people, or is it, uh, people misunderstanding reformed theology or, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I think that there, there are a few reasons. I think as far as, uh, you know, the objection that, that Calvinists can't be libertarian, I think that probably comes from the strain of, of Calvinists who were, um, establishmentarian and, uh, you know, who wanted a theocratic government of some, some sort, um, and those, those people still exist. Um, so, you know, it's not like it's a, it, it's not like, you know, our view, uh, those of us who are reformed anarchist or reformed libertarian, it's not like our view is like settled among Galvanists, uh, cause it's not. Um, but as far as sort of the, the more, uh, you know, negative uh, sense of Calvinism. I think that comes from a few things. One, a misunderstanding. You've got that term hyper-Calvinist out there, which if you examine hyper-Calvinism next to legitimate Calvinism, it's hyper-Calvinism is not Calvinism in the slightest. Um, it's, like, it's like capitalism and crony capitalism. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a, <laughs> that's a great analogy. Um, but you also have... Um, you know, I think that in Reformed theology, you have several more strains um, of, you know, or, or roots that Calvinists took. You know, you've got the, the Zwinglians, you have, uh, you have Calvin um, himself, uh, you have the, the Dutch Reformed view, you have the Scottish uh, Presbyterians. You've, so you've got these different strains um, who all have their different uh, idiosyncrasies. Um, some of them can be a little bit more uh, staunch or harsh than others, um, but maybe you know some of some of the other objections to Calvinism is that we 
we're still, we're Christians who still believe in things like total depravity, right? That, that all human beings are inherently sinful rather than inherently good. And that's something that society doesn't really like to think about. They want to think about people as being generally good. Uh, Calvinists believe that people are, are inherently sinful. Um, incidentally, that's, <laughs> that's a very good motivation for, for reformed anarchists, because we, mm-hmm. we would say, yes, everybody is sinful. So why would you concentrate power in the hands of right. sinner, isn't, sinners isn't that, in the form of that, monopoly government? That, that's what, um, I think it's what C.S. Lewis said, even though he wasn't reformed, but he was like, you know, uh, like men is, uh, flawed and evil and no man is, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact word, like, no man is fit to rule over even himself, let alone, uh, you know, other people, you know, least of all the one, and least of all the one who seeks it. Yeah. Um, I think it's what C.S. Lewis said, um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's, I was going to say, like, the, to me, some people are like, well, if you think people are evil, don't you need a state? It's like, no, like, <laughs> it's the opposite. People are, are, are sinful and flawed. And uh, historically speaking, it seems like, statism makes that worse <laughs> like when people gain that right. political power i mean sure uh, sinful people can cause harm but when you can co- only cause harm with the power that you yourself wield versus you know political power you know political yeah. power it's like a it's like a modifier it's a it scales the mm-hmm. the amount of evil that can be done yeah um, so well and you know we would certainly say as as reformed anarchists, we would say that, you know, people are capable of, of governing themselves, um, insofar as, as, uh, we have common grace, right. Uh, Um, and some, some people govern themselves better than others, but the point is, is that nobody is fit to govern or rule another person. Um, at least, you know, at, at least in the sense of, of somebody assuming that authority over you, um, now, can you choose leaders for yourself? Yes. Um, is there a legitimate authority in the world? Yes. Um, but that is arguably not uh, found in in the state. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <sighs> if it's a legitimate authority and people are, you know, uh, you know, to me, it's like a legitimate authority is an authority that people don't need coercion to submit to. Right. In my opinion, you know, it's like, I mean, yeah. aside for, you know, now people who are doing evil, maybe that, that that's the exception, you know, they, you know, obviously we would say that force can be used in defense against people who are uh, initiating aggression. But outside of that, um, you know, like the authority that like my pastor has in my life is uh, authority that he doesn't need, you know, coercion to exercise. I voluntarily right. submit to his authority. Um, right. And, you know, that's also the same kind of submission to authority that you see in marriage that you see in uh in 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 the workplace you know uh, an employee to his employer mm-hmm. uh, so that that kind of stuff um yeah what would you what would you say is the um the connection as far as like reformed theology to uh then like f- philosophy because i know you said like you're you're trying to bring reformed theology into these these philosophical uh, aims that you're, you're getting at as far as, you know, in, in your, uh, work with mere liberty. Um, so what's the connection that, that you're making there? Well, um, (laughs) Gregory Baus is definitely, uh, way better at answering this question than I am. Um, 
because he's the one who introduced me to it. But no, there's there's an actual field of of philosophical study called reformational philosophy. It was started by um, a Calvinist in the Netherlands by the name of Herben Doivert. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, he was a follower of Abraham Kuyper, who's a very famous, uh, Dutch reformed Calvinist, um, who had, uh, a concept of, of sphere sovereignty, uh, um, and, uh, and Doivert had a, has a philosophy that is non-reductionist. Um, which basically means, you know, life is complex and it's dynamic and we can't actually reduce it to, to, uh, to anything, you know, in it, like we can't, uh, we can't reduce, um, for example, we can't reduce the problem of a, uh, of a pandemic down to masks and social distancing and vaccines, like, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, so the non-reductionist, uh, sort of take on the world is that it's, it's complex, um, and you can't reduce it. Um, it's all worth studying. Um, it, it, and, um, specifically that a, uh, that our religious belief informs our, our study of the world. So no matter which religious belief you hold, even atheism, that's going to inform how you see these other aspects of reality. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, uh, is applicable in my situation with, with my research, what I'm doing, especially when it comes to say the abortion debate is to say, we can't reduce the problem of abortion to, uh, you know, slutty, irresponsible women, right? We can't uh, reduce the problem of abortion down to um, even just bad choices, right? Because there's economics that are involved in that. Uh, um, we can't reduce the problem of abortion down to, uh, well, we need a law, right? There, there's a number of things that are involved. It's complex, it's dynamic. And if we take it seriously as such, then maybe we can actually start providing solutions to the problem. Um, rather than continuing to throw darts at, at these things. Yeah, in other words, like there's not a one size fits all solution that will apply across the board, you know, right. and, you know, statism is like a, you know, using a hammer and going around and assuming everything's a nail. Yeah, well, and I think intuitively we know this, you know, all those mm -hmm. people that we talked about being in the gray area who will say I'm pro-life but or I'm pro-choice but, that but is always followed with it's complicated, Right. right. Everybody, well, most everybody probably knows somebody who has had an abortion or at least has had an unwanted pregnancy and has had to work through the problems that are associated with that. Those are varied. They're dynamic. They're based on individual circumstances and those individual circumstances are all different. And we might find patterns, right. That are, that arise, which is uh, how we try to find solutions, but you're not going to see those patterns until you actually uh, understand that it is a complex and dynamic, um, complicated problem because we are complex and dynamic um, human beings with complex and dynamic circumstances. Um, so at any rate, that's um, th that's basically the area that, that I'm using uh, reformational philosophy in. Cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, 
the, the, the reformed worldview is just, it, it is very deep and there's mm-hmm. so much more to it than just, than just Calvin. I mean, it's funny that we call it Calvinism when really it's like, he, I guess he's kind of the, maybe the historical, uh, uh, trying figure. to get the right word. Figure yeah. The head. figure, the figurehead mm-hmm. that kind of like started the movement, but I mean, it, you know, since then there's been a lot of, of reformers that have done a lot of work since him. So it's, it's funny that he gets, you know, we, we focus so much on him. I mean, I, I've, I found a lot of, and it's, it's so deep. There's so much in reformed, the reformed worldview and, and the different schools of it and confessions and writings and stuff to study. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, this, the, the sphere of so- sovereignty uh, is, is definitely a really interesting concept that I've, I've started to read more about that I think really helps to give a good answer to uh you know, the passages that are hard for Christians to handle, like Romans 13, and like mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, what's the proper role of authority. And um, it just seems to me that, and I'm not trying to be divisive when I say this, but it just seems to me that the reformed anarchist position is the most biblically consistent Christian libertarian message, because it, it actually contends with these these passages, and doesn't just like either come up with lukewarm answers of like, oh yeah, well, it, it does support a state, but we don't have to, and just kind of, or or to say, you know, to go as far as, uh, you know, some people, they just go, well, I don't like Paul. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, which is, uh, I think that's the most common answer I hear people on Christian libertarian and anarchist pages, you know, those say, what about Romans 13? It's like, well, that was Paul. So I don't like Paul. So it's like, well, that's just such a, yeah. just avoiding it it's like but, whereas yeah you know we, the, what we do is we actually you know well no what is what are these passages talking about and let's let's dive into them deep and understand uh the worldview that that's being built here and yeah and and then you know you know it's, it's a very good systematic theology that um that i think you know and and uh yeah, that, that categorizes these things well and into ways that can be easily understood and, and expressed. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, after, after talking with Greg, it was like, it was, it was, it was very helpful. Like it, I finally had like a, like a, an answer to Romans 13 that I mm-hmm. felt content with that like, because yeah. before it was like people, like, what about Romans 13? And I'd be like, well, uh. I don't know. <laughs> like here's, here's 10 different answers and yeah. pick, pick the one that you like the most. And I still do that. Like if someone's not reformed and, or if someone's just like asking me if they're not a Christian, I'll go, well, here's a few different, you know, areas. Here's yeah. the one that I, you know, I mean, cause I prefer people to reject the state. So if they're not going to accept my answer, then it's like, okay, well, how about this one? You know, I'll give them an, al- an alternative one that might speak to them where they're at more yeah. than, than mine. But I think, I think that, you know, the idea that, Romans 13 is speaking to civil governance and not not the state, which to me is just easily uh, self-evident by the fact that it even says the rulers are not a terror to to good works, but to bad works. It's like, well, right. that's just such an, such an easy foil to the state because it's like, or any, you yeah. know, it's, it's just easy. You can tell legitimate authority for what it is because of its fruit. And right. Romans 13 is not uh, descriptive it is prescriptive. It, it is prescribing mm-hmm. the role of civil governance and you will know legitimate authority by the fact that they're acting within that scope, not just because right. they, they claim that, that they are the proper authority. 
Yeah, I think I think there's at least there's at least enough um, libertarian and anarchist uh, uh, interpretations of Romans 13 that it's time for those statist Christians to finally say, okay, we have to have a conversation about this. We can no longer say this is just about you know the state, um, you, you know, universally throughout history, no matter who it is or or you know what country it's in or what time it's in or, or whatever. Um, you know, I think, I think that view runs into a huge problem, especially when it comes to that verse about, um, you know, governance being, um, not being a terror to good. It's like, okay, if that's true, if that's true, and this applies to like the United States government, then what you're doing is you're baptizing all of these horrendous, actions that the state takes and saying those are for your good right so the drone bombings um you know killing innocent civilians in the middle east that turns out to be um for their good right that's a hard thing to defend right um abortion is another example right if if our standard is whatever the government does it does for our good then we have to say abortion is for good is is for our good and that's a contradiction um so it's completely untenable for us to say that um that Romans 13 is is uh is descriptive it has to be this is this is how god intends civil governance to be it's it's an idea it's it's an ideal that we have to conform to rather than this is just the way it is all the time right yeah otherwise we have to believe that paul was calling the roman state that eventually killed like most of the apostles good yeah just is just not a comprehensible interpretation at all um, well, and, uh, you know, we run into some other problems if we if we also understand these terms and uh, these things in terms of legitimate versus illegitimate authority, because uh, in marriage, for example, there is a, some legitimate authority that the husband has over the wife. We can't escape that in scripture, but that doesn't give him license to abuse her. Right. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, I know I know of one pastor in particular who's very, um, very uh a staunch advocate of abuse victims and supports divorce for, um, you know, in the cases of abuse, he's not very popular in reformed circles or he's growing in popularity, but then on the other hand, turns around and says, no, we submit to the state. We absolutely submit to the state. This is, you know, they're, they're here for our good. And it's like, this is inconsistent. You can't hold this view of marriage and say that there's legitimate and illegitimate authority in marriage and then not look at the state with those same eyes and say that all authority from the state is legitimate. That's a good way of putting it. And it's it's almost like the state is an abusive relationship when you think about it, that we're oh, yeah. forced into. I mean, it's like an arranged marriage almost that you were, like before you were born, it was like you will be wed to the state and, oh, yeah. and no matter what, stuck in it. And, you know... Yeah, I grew up seeing various women in my my family uh, who were caused great harm because they were essentially forced by pastors to stay in their abusive marriages. And yeah, I've always right. had very strong feelings against that. I mean, yeah, um, you know, yeah. I mean, 
there, there's a line, you know, I mean, if, 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 if a woman is in a position in a, in a marriage where the, her husband isn't treating her right and she feels that she can stay there and, and love him and, and, and try to uh, be used by, by Christ to kind of bring repentance and healing, like that, that might be something that can be sought after, but at the same time, like, it's just dicey. You know, I don't, I don't think that we should be telling women to, just to stay in, in relationships where they're getting continually and to normalize that in our, you know, right. it's a very harmful thing in, in church culture. And I know that's not popular, popular to say in conservative reformed circles, but I just, it is something that I, I do view as harmful in the church culture. The, the, the very like negative talk we, we you know, we, we have and views, we rhetoric, we have towards divorce. Yeah. Um, it's not that I think divorce is good. Um, yeah. you know, but I think the, the proper way to deal with divorce is, you know, you, you said this towards the beginning of our conversation, which is like, um, pr- you know, prevention is better than cure. You know, we mm-hmm. should be seeking to, you know, not, it's better to prevent people from getting into marriages that they shouldn't be into than to solve th- that problem once you're there. But one, right. you have to acknowledge that sometimes mistakes were made and, there needs to be a solution, even if it's not an ideal solution, there's not always going to be an ideal solution. Like we talked about. Yeah. Well, maybe you should have me back on to, to, to talk about complementarianism and marriage and divorce and all that. Cause I could say a million things. About that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Um, well, it's been, uh, it's been fun. Um, I think we covered everything. Uh, so uh, you do work for LCI, you have mere Liberty, um, you know, what other ways people can, uh, you know, find you and, and, and follow what you're doing? Well, of course you can follow me on Facebook. Um, I also started, um, uh, online classes teaching critical thinking, uh, using the Socratic method. Um, so you can find, uh, information on those it's for middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults. You can find, uh, information on those seminars at mere, uh, excuse me, courses.mereliberty.com. What's the, um, you're, you're still doing, uh, people can still sign up for the courses or how long is that going? Um, so next semester registration for the spring semester, which starts January 4th is closed. Okay, I cl- closed. Okay. Yeah. I closed it yesterday. If somebody wants to squeeze in, they would have to contact me very quickly, but I don't know when you're putting this out. Um, anyways, that, that class starts on January 4th. I will have summer classes. Um, just like I did last summer, but basically it's a weekly, uh, weekly seminar. You get a weekly lesson and then we have a weekly zoom call, um, where, uh, I use a Socratic seminar style, um, to, uh, to teach, basically teach the skills of critical thinking. Um, so as I said, I do that for middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults. I've had tons of really wonderful feedback. Everybody's loved it so far. You can see those testimonials on, um, on my courses site. So. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Carrie. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely do it again sometime, maybe on the, the subject of marriage and, and uh, relationships. Cause that is, that is something I would like to talk about, but until then, sure. I hope have a good rest of your night and uh, thank you. Yeah, be safe and uh, you know, stay inside. Don't go out. It's dangerous. <laughs> right. Yeah. So dangerous. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Yep. Have a good night.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.